a litany of failures and entirely preventable. That's how the chief ombudsman, Peter Boschier, has described the murder of five-year-old Malachi Subex. The little boy suffered months of abuse at the hands of his carer before he was killed last November. Peter Boschier has found Oranga Tamariki failed to make the bare minimum action when concerns were raised by Malachi's wider whanau and says it should apologise. Separately, the Education Ministry has ordered the closure of Abby's Place Childcare Centre after a review of his dealings with Malachi and his caregiver. Malachi attended the Tauranga Childcare Centre where staff witnessed and even photographed his injuries but never alerted authorities about the suspected abuse. Jane Searle is a former police detective lawyer and now heads up the organisation Child Matters. Jane, kia ora. Kia ora, wife. And first up, I have to acknowledge just how distressing and upsetting this case is. You would have come across many and varied cases in your career as a lawyer and detective, but this, deeply shocking. So many cases exactly like this, Wallace, and the Ombudsman has quite rightly identified some huge failings. But sadly, for those of us who work in this area, none of that is a surprise. It hasn't been different for years. Can you explain that a little bit for us? We had you on about a year ago talking about this, and it's hone in right on the key issue here, and that is child protection training by law. What are we not seeing? Well, we don't have it. It's not mandatory here. So, for example, in England, you cannot have your teacher's registration without having received child protection training. Um, We've been asking for this for years, and why we don't do it is beyond me. Sorry, it's Mark. Has an explanation ever been given about that, Jane? Um, well, I, I don't know, to be honest. Um, I think there'll be to do with some of the resource that would be required around it, and it just hasn't been given the priority that it needs. So we've had this discussion with politicians for years, um, and while there is some support for it, it just hasn't moved. So it, it's a real simple one. I mean, there's other things. These are complicated issues, and there's other things that need to be done, particularly around Oranga Tamariku, obviously. But this is an easy one, and why we don't do it, is there's just no explanation for it. Before we go to uh, Linda, just explain to us how um, uh, mandatory child protection training might work. So we train lots of schools, but it is down right. to the individual board of trustees or principal that ah. they do get trained. So there's tra- we've been doing this training for years. Oh, so you do it? Other sectors. We, do, we do it. We've been doing it for years along with other sectors. Um, we've been doing it for 30 years, but it, it's not mandatory. So some schools are excellent and um, will have their tra- staff trained frequently. Other schools will tell us there's no need for it and it's just not prioritised. That's why it needs to be mandated. I see, because last time we had you, we did have some people saying, oh, hang on. We do have it at at our school, but the issue is that uh, it's pick and choose on whether the school that your daughter or son goes to actually has this for childcare. Correct. That's absolutely correct. So if teachers aren't trained, then they don't know how to respond and identify these issues and then what to do in the system. So Malachi's case is a, a clear case of the evidence was there. They had identified the issues, but they did not take it any further. So a lack of training is one of the key things that could influence reporting. If we think that there's two groups of people that see these at-risk children more than anyone else, their health workers and their school teachers, early childhood teachers. So they must be trained. Linda. I mean, how can you not pass on a report? I mean, it's so obvious, isn't it? I mean, children, you know, they have everyday injuries, you know, they break arms and legs and, you know, just accidents. But 
And a child that's being abused, it should be fairly obvious, don't you think, to be able to intervene at that point? And also, why is it that we have these stories just come again and again and again? Like, what is completely wrong with OT? That, that you know, in this particular instance, you know, they asked his mum, are you, are you okay with it? And she said, sure, but they never even talked to the child. Yeah, it, you're so right, Linda. There are so many cases that I can think of where you spoke to people after a child was seriously injured or died and people said they noticed something but they hadn't done anything about it. You see, the thing that... So it is, Keep going, Jane. So I was just going to say, so and, and in this case, we've got to remember the family did report. A report of concern was made on, I think, the 28th of June 2001. The fatal injuries that he received was on the 1st of November that year. So that's a long time that those reports of concern were not actioned. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, look, I mean, I think like all of us, I found this really, really disturbing. It's disturbing. Very, very hard to read. It's just shocking. It's heartbreaking. And, and, and you, it came to the same thing that Linda said. You think, well, hang on a minute, this is a no-brainer. We would surely want to do anything we could to look after our children. Anything. You you would think so, but actually we don't have the legislation to back that up that other countries have for a start. We don't have the training. And also, then people need to engage with the systems that we have. Now, obviously, there's huge failings with Oranga Tamariki. Um, and what's ironic about that is that this child was not only failed by those who were meant to care for him day to day, he was failed by the agency who exists to protect him. And he was failed in every way. This is not new. This has been going on for years and years. And unfortunately, no one who works in the sector is surprised by the Ombudsman's report because things at the front line have not been improved. Uh, Jane, kia ora. Thank you for your time. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to this, this issue of um, a, a compulsory child protection training by law. It seems to be um, uh, common sense, would it not, Mark, that if some schools have it, you'd think that all schools would want to have this type of training. Oh, absolutely no-brainer, Wallace. But the other thing that disturbs me, this happened at a time when Oranga Tamariki was already under extensive scrutiny. You know, you'd think they'd be on their game. So if this is happening in the midst of intense scrutiny, imagine what had been slipped through in the past. Oh, it's just, I've, it's just it's, deeply disturbing. It's heartbreaking too when you think, like, I mean, I've been a journalist for 25 years, and in that time, the very first stories I ever wrote were these failings in what was then social welfare care and looking after children. And, I mean, it's, how is this still happening? Like, what, how do we have an agency whose job it is to do this that doesn't seem capable of doing that job? And we, yet we don't do anything about it. Let's have another review. I mean, Six. you presume they're not uncaring. You presume there's not, there aren't people there who are des, you know, deliberately trying to... Well, as Jane's saying, it's putting in those pieces and mm. it's, it's a communi- communicating across networks, across agencies, isn't it? It's a, it's a complicated and complex field. Nonetheless... Uh, it was an extraordinary, uh, shocking story, this one. Kia ora to you all. I'm Wallace Chapman. We are on the panel. I'm with Mark Sainsbury and Linda Helenane. And can I just say, there has been a big response to the F-Boy story and showing F-Boy on uh, TV NZ. Oh, my God. Showing your age, RNZ. I somehow don't think that you, your panel, or your audiences are up for F-Boys. That's what diversity of audiences are all about, people. Married at First Sight, Love Island, top-rating online shows, creating content in New Zealand, feeds the local production community, and it creates jobs. Sure, the show is not for everyone, but creating content for all New Zealand audiences and what TV and video is all about. You old peeps on the panel don't need to like it. It's not for you. 
go back to your country and western music and stop <laughs> criticising things that you clearly have no understanding of. Is there an address well, for that coming? Say, <laughs> Linda. I'm going to say it's not been that long since, thank you very much, I was out there trying to negotiate myself between the nice boys and the F boys. You know, I did a fair bit of market research, and I've got to say, I don't think it would have helped anyone's cause to have had that on TV. <laughs> okay. Yes, bring back New Zealand garden shows and other good programs. Don't you realise yet they are putting rubbish such as F boys into our sitting rooms deliberately to offend and break down our sensibilities. Wake up. Uh, culture wars are raging in this country. The question is, who is behind it? Um, so, yeah, huge response to the the F-Boy thing. Anyway, to this. I found this fascinating. Have you abandoned the idea of a standalone home? Do you now dream of something smaller, something more sustainable? A tiny home, maybe. A parliamentary select committee has rejected a petition to have tiny homes recognised as affordable, safe and healthy permanent accommodation. But young one young Auckland couple is not put off. They're pressing ahead with plans to build their own tiny home and be debt-free by the time they're 25. Yep, 25. With us is Eugene Claxton and Lauren Book. Eugene, Lauren, kia ora. Nice to have you on the panel. Hi there. Thank you for having us. Pleasure, Lauren. Thank you so much. Good on you, Eugene. Tell us your story. How did you come to wanting a tiny home? Well, I guess it just really started when we were thinking about, okay, well, how are we going to afford to move out of home and, you know, afford to live where things are just increasing in price and, you know, money's tight. We're only young. We, I think we moved out when we were 18. And, you know, by then you're only having a minimum wage job and you're quite skint for money. So I think the idea really appealed to us due to financial reasons, but also just uh, sustainable reasons as well, just to think of how we could live more sustainably, how we can um, live by decluttering um, our lives and everything and just reducing what we have. Okay, Eugene. And Lauren, how far along the track are you with your tiny house? Yeah, excitingly, we're actually nearly done now. So it's been a a long journey of just uh, under two years of building it ourselves. And uh, we're about to move in, yeah, at the end of the month, which is, yeah, absolutely exciting. Are you excited? Yeah, we yeah we really are. It's been it's been a, it's been a great journey, like the, the building, designing, everything like that. But uh, yeah, when it comes to an end, actually being able to live in the place, uh, that will be the next level. <laughs> It'll be the challenge, and I've seen images of it, and I've got to say, it's pretty styly as well. Eugene Lauren, uh, Marks with us, and Linda. Hey, you guys, I'm just wondering, why did the committee turn it down? What was their problem with tiny homes? Yeah, I mean, it really depends. It's a very uh, new movement still, I guess, uh, out of the yeah uh, more yeah conservative uh, side of thinking, uh, because this is just a way to be able to uh, get into a home um, yeah at a at a different path than is uh, usually available. Um, yeah, and new ideas like that uh, just take some time to to appear, even though they are uh, yeah favorable for a lot of people. Um, yeah, like in our situation. Oh, actually, I may have found an explanation. Listen to this, Wallace. This yeah. is the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment said it was currently analysing how existing legislation applied to tiny homes in order to provide guidance for industry. Based on this analysis and the outcomes from court challenges to its determinations, it planned to develop guidance for councils and the sector. What do we get out of that? Nothing, Nothing at all. Linda? 
I, I don't understand why we don't really embrace this as a trend. I mean, I mean, obviously I'm middle-aged and I might not be able to watch Coronation Street when I'm sitting inside my tiny home, um, but I actually think it's a really great idea. You know, there's lots of people with a lot of land where you could easily tack a small house on. And we have this housing crisis. We have people who can't afford to get into their own homes. This is a great first step. And equally, you know, like I went to visit my nephew, who's a student in Otago this week, and he is in one of the, you know, original student flats down there. And how that thing gets its healthy home standards is beyond me. I cannot understand why we allow that. For one end of the yep. can't afford a house market, but we won't allow young people to build their own first home on wheels. Well, I've heard some horror stories, Eugene and Lauren, about people trying to build a tiny home and not getting through the red tape. Real, actually quite sad stories. But it sounds like you both found it okay. Um, what's some real key advice for those people out there, young or otherwise, who actually are thinking, you know what, this is a solution. I can't afford or I don't want to afford a house. This is the way. What's some advice, Lauren? Uh, yeah, I appreciate that question. It's a very good question, actually. Um, yeah, we get that question a lot uh, from people looking to do the same thing. And uh, taking that, it is still a, a new movement. There's not a lot of information that is uh, super distinct. So yeah. um, first of all, um, taking that a, a tiny home, and to clarify that a tiny home on wheels, um, that is the, yeah, the way to be able to actually um, yeah, live um, without having a, a building consent or oh. living on someone else's land. Um, so that is the first key part. So whatever you're building needs to actually be on a road legal trailer um, and it connected to the trailer and being uh, yeah, classified as a vehicle uh, yeah, by the Transport uh, Act. Um, and, yeah, so that is, that's the, the main first part that answers your question. Okay. Very, very good indeed. Nice to have you on the program. By the way, so, uh, Eugene, just finally, um, uh, you've got everything ready for your tiny home. You've got your stove, your washing machine. Can you shower in it or do you have to go to a public toilet block? No, no. So we have everything that like a standard oh. house has. So um, all we have to do is to set up a water tank, which we are able to collect ourselves, and we'll just have to uh, um, watch out the water intake. <laughs> Lovely, good on you. That's Eugene and Lauren realizing their dream. I, 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 I love the, I love, I love a good tiny home. It always you, gets you, me. But could you live in a tiny home? Yes, I home? can. I live. No, you not. But if you had your family with uh, you. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm a fan of small spaces. Yeah. I, I love that small space vibe. I like being sort of cozy. You know, I don't like these big, big, um, meandering. Uh, Linda Hellenan type houses, you know, where uh, that's you, eh, Linda? <laughs> With a garden. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, so you're I, living in a rabbit honest, hutch. The... <laughs> <laughs> what he was saying, though, too, is a, what, he's, what he was saying is important, too, because what you've got at the moment is you've got a situation where people have to pretend that they're going to put their tiny house on a trailer and drive yeah. it around all the yeah. time in order to find a gap through the red tape. Like, actually just let people build tiny homes and sit them wherever they want. It shouldn't make any difference to, you know, the rest okay. of the population. I can't see why we can't move forward with legislation to help Very that. good indeed. Well, well done, Eugene. Well done, Lyle. We'll send them a, a, a card. Uh, make it a small card. <laughs> 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 All right, so yesterday we had quite a bit of feedback about kookaburras. Why? Uh, well, they're an iconic Australian bird, along with the, the galah. Uh, but did you know that there are also kookaburras in Aotearoa? Many of you did not. I did not. Have a listen to this. Yep. Not for me, not for me. Give me the native birds, not the kookaburra. Anyway, Sir George Gray, by all accounts, released kookaburras on Kawai Island. And Manu Davidson got in touch. He's a research fellow at Massey University. Manu, kia ora. Uh, kia ora, Wallace. 
And little segue uh, here, uh, one, a family member, um, is uh, your son has just bought a tiny home. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> that, that, that's interesting. A couple of items you've had on recently um, about the waste from uh, construction sites actually built uh, yeah built it for him oh. uh, and I used about um, about sixty percent of it is from uh, old pallets and um, 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 you know abandoned material from building sites. Amazing. So, yeah. Back to Cookaburra with Manu. Um, where are you seeing them? Um, the uh, we're seeing them around our area in Coatesville. I've been sort of um, doing um, bird counts for a, a number of years now, and um, we're seeing a lot of Cookaburras. Um, Sort of Riverhead Forest, Coatesville, Albany, and up to Matakana. You've done surveys in the area for a number of decades. Are they yes. are they increasing or what? No, the the the, the population um, across Auckland and there's, there's one or two observations up north around about 500. So. It's quite stable, and um, that's probably quite good for our native birds. But, yep. um, they're actually not um, increasing in numbers. And, um, yes, and they're probably limited by their food supply. In Australia, they feed on snakes and lizards. And, I see. Um, they, are, they are feeding on our lizards, and, and but they're more sort of um, uh, feeding on invertebrates here and probably the odd lizard when they can find one. Of all the Australian imports that you thought you'd uh, discover in uh, Aotearoa, Linda, did you know that uh, it could be the kookaburra? No, but um, I'm now Googling them all up because I love the idea of being able to hear a kookaburra because, of course, we all remember that story, don't we, about the kookaburra sitting on the telephone wire as kids? Now, you're going to sing it for us, Mark. Words of that. What, what kookaburra <laughs> sits in the old gum tree? Now, I never, and that's when I start losing the plot. Yes. <laughs> but the thing is, it raises that question. What should we do with them? I mean... Because they're not native to New Zealand, I mean, they don't appear to be an imminent threat to anything, but should we have a policy like with the possums and things of getting rid of, you know, alien species in this country? Well, perhaps they could start eating all of those Australian geckos that are everywhere. Oh, Mm. Manu? Um, It's not a bad question, but um, because their population is really small and they're not really expanding... Um, and also there is the issue that um, we may be getting vagrants of them actually coming across the Tasman. So, um, yeah, they're not a problem at the moment. So um, I guess we just sort of uh, need to accept that they're, they're adding to our biodiversity. And um, they, uh, it, because they're not a threat, um, the Department of Conservation um, are not doing anything about them. But uh, when they become a threat, if they do, then um, they probably have to change um, their attitude. Right, Manu, did you say they, they, they were getting them? Across? They fly from Australia over here, some. Um, well, we do. A lot of our um, birds are actually originated from Australia, and we're still getting vagrants across from Australia. The, uh, recently, we um, had pelicans coming across, so they do get blown across the Tasman. Um, so yes, um, they're, they're quite. Uh, Australian birds are quite regular vagrants to New Zealand. Some of them don't um, establish and um, and and um, breed and do a, a, a develop into breeding colonies. Hey, um, but, um, Manu, we've got a we've got an editorial complaint. I might share it with you. Um, yeah. Bloody noisy Australians. This is Radio New Zealand. Uh, do we have to listen to their insufferable <laughs> kerfuffle and senseless noise? Uh, what about? Local birds, uh, says, <laughs> I tell you, uh, says Warwick uh, Petunia in the snow. So um, 
tell us about a New Zealand bird there, Manu. Um, you're saying that you're quite excited about the regular sightings of kaka in Coatesville. Yes, well, that's actually really exciting. We, um, um, My wife and I go for a very early morning walk and there's three kaka that have established themselves in a grove of um, gum trees. Um, sorry about them being Australian trees. Um, but, um, yeah, the kaka um, are, are building up in numbers and uh, they're coming across from um, Great Barrier Island and Little Barrier Island, but there's a lot of pest control um, going on in Coastville at the moment and we think that may be... The reason the same same things happening in Wellington, um, a lot of kaka in Wellington because of the halo effect from Zealandia, and believe it or not, kaka are actually starting to be a problem. Linda, um, you may be interested in that. Um, kaka are actually destroying um, um, plants. Oh, they're terrible in gardens. Yeah, so they go for the gardens, don't they? They love the big plants. They go for everything. Right? Do they? Yeah. Yeah. Round up the kookaburra with the possums, call them 501s and send, send them, them home. back. Send them back. <laughs> 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 Kia ora, Manu. Lovely to have you on the program. Very, very good. Now, people are saying, Linda, uh, what about when's, when's the Linda Hallinan gardening show on? That's what the, oh, no, the, see, when, I, when's the I would 100% ha- agree with your earlier listener that I'm a bit old for that now. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, think, I think Maggie Barry retired at 42 and I'm 48, so I'm like a, there should something, be something, something new out there. Linda Hallinan's patch, something yeah. sort of really, <laughs> you know. We'll do a double act, Linda. That's yeah. a good idea. <laughs> hey, let's go just quickly back to birds, though. No, so no time, we, you know, we'll round it all up with the segue. Just quickly, well, really yeah, quickly, no, the well, old the shining pips, cuckoos are back. Oh, there you go. All right, Linda Hallinan, Mark Safeby, thank you. Thanks to Liz Brown for producing the show. I'm Wallace Chapman back tomorrow. Checkpoint is next.